Welcome to an episode of I Know I Know a Solo Beatles podcast where we talk all things Solo Beatles. Now, today we have a really special guest. Um, she, I guess we can call her like the ultimate like detective because I mean, she, she was a private detective. Still am. Wow. <laughs> so, so do, do you know where Jimmy Nickel is? Um, but, um, she is the author of the brand new book, Ticket to Ride, How I Ran Away to England to Meet the Beatles and Got Rock and Roll Band in Cleveland. Janice, welcome to the show. Thank you, Hudson, for having me on your show. So, so, um, when did you first, were like, when did you first realize, I've got this great story, I need to write, write this book? When, when did that come to you? Well, I always knew I had a great story, but I didn't, it didn't really strike me to begin to write it until around 2016, when I heard on the radio, uh, Paul McCartney singing, and Live Nation was advertising that he was coming to Cleveland to, for his one-on-one -on -one concert. And that's when it struck me. And I have to ask you, what is your favorite Beatles song? Oh my goodness. Well, I don't know how anybody could actually have one favorite, but the one that is the most dear to my heart is the first one that I ever heard that changed my whole life, the trajectory of my life forever when I was 15 years old. And I heard, I want to hold your hand when it was played for the very first time in Cleveland. And that's when I was completely transformed by that by the sound of the Beatles the chords the harmony the music the love the excitement it just um, it was like a lightning bolt for me so that's my the dearest song to me like a dear old friend so I would have to say if I have to if, if I'm forced to choose something I have to say that that it's that and what about your favorite Beatles album well, again, it's really almost impossible to select a favorite Beatles album when every single album has the most wonderful songs. But once again, the dearest album to my heart is uh, the very first album, Introducing the Beatles. Um, and then Meet the Beatles, that was the very first album I ever purchased when I raced to disc records at, at uh, the local... Uh, shopping mall in Cleveland Heights to purchase Meet the Beatles because it had as the very first song, uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand. I had to own that for my very own. Wow. Introducing so, the Beatles well, is an answer that I've never heard. And I'm, I'm really pleased with that because I think that's a really underrated album. I agree with you. I mean, it has all these wonderful songs, The Taste of Honey, Anna, Chains. I mean, there's just so many wonderful, wonderful tunes, you know, before the technological era was introduced, you know, by George Martin. But these are the originals, in my opinion, you know, the simple, simple songs were how the Beatles first got started. So I, I love every song on that album. I mean, how can you not love every single Beatles song? You can't, it's impossible. I mean, it's not loving 
It's like not loving cats. Or dogs. Like, <laughs> fair enough. Um, <laughs> so Jan, would you be willing to walk us through the events of 1964? I, I am willing to walk you through the events that occurred and that I did in, in my life in 1964. So I was, 1963 was a particularly uh, sad year for me. I mean, I had originally been living in a household where my parents had abandoned me and my siblings. And um, so when I was seven years old, I started living with my great aunt and my great uncle and my great aunt's daughter. And uh, life was pretty, pretty good, you know, pretty, uh, pretty satisfying. You know, I, there was everything I needed and I didn't have to worry. And then I was very, very close with my great uncle Mac. He was wonderful to me. I had never known, you know, um, love from a family member before except from him and we were like we were like the, the um Shirley Temple movie Heidi with Heidi and the grandfather you know we were just like that and and in 1963 he unfortunately he he passed away just quite suddenly and uh it just ripped my ripped my heart out to lose him like that and then my great aunt she started becoming ill and uh, my her daughter just started taking over the household in a very unhappy way for me so i was living through that and then in, and to make matters even worse on november 22nd 1963 that's when our president john f kennedy was assassinated so 1963 was just a terrible year until December 26, 1963, when I first heard, I want to hold your hand. And then, of course, everything changed for me. And my friend, Marty, we were just, we became Beatle maniacs, like, instantly. Like, in that moment, we were Beatle maniacs from then on. And we bought all the records we could afford, the bubblegum cards from my local uh, soda shop, Irv's Deli. He was the best. He had all the teen magazines. He had... Uh, the bubblegum cards, everything you could want. Beatles candy, Beatles buttons, you know, so that's what we did. We bought all those things. In those days, there was no internet. Of course, there were no computers. Uh, all, the only way that you had to connect with the Beatles was through records, through, um, through magazines, Beatles magazines, telling stories, that's what we would do. You know, we'd dance away and then we'd make up our Beatles stories, you know, like George and I walking down the street. Oh, you're going to marry Paul McCartney? And then we'd, we'd tell our cute little stories. And that's, that's what we did. So I was reading a Beatles magazine over at Marty's house. And I read a story that said, oh, and the Beatles could hang out in Soho in London. So I thought, wow, how could anybody just put that in a magazine so now everybody would know where the Beatles were. So I showed it to my friend and I said, look, look at this. Look at this golden nugget I just unearthed. And we started talking about our unhappy homes and wouldn't it be wonderful? And I said, to leave home. And I said, let's go to Beatleland, to London, to Liverpool, to England. Let's do it. So she said, well, you know, I have a college fund 
And I never planned on going to college, but we could use that money for that. So now we were kind of set that we had the means to go. Now we just had to figure out how to do it. So of course, where do you go in those days to find out everything you needed to know about anything? The library. So I was a huge library lover. I spent a lot of time there. I read all my Nancy Drew books there. You could ask the librarians anything you wanted to know. So I went to the library downtown Cleveland because this was going to be momentous now. How to get a passport with the librarian helped me get some forms and understand how to do it. So um, we decided we would send away for our passports. However, in that during that summer, uh, it was announced on radio that the Beatles were going to be performing live at in Cleveland at the public auditorium on September 15, 1964. And the way to try and get a ticket was um, put in a newspaper article that you had to send a postcard addressed specifically in a very specific manner to WHK radio station. And they decided that because they had seen how all these kids had gone completely crazy, bananas, chaos, trying to see the Beatles, they came up with a plan to use an IBM computer for the very first time to select the postcards of the lucky people who were going to be able to purchase tickets. So if your postcard got selected, you'd receive a letter in the mail uh, with no return address because they were very concerned that people would steal those letters out of the mail. So um, we both got letters. So we were both now able to go and purchase two tickets um, at the public hall box office on June 9th. So I said, well, okay, so they, they figured out a great way to, to actually get the letters to purchase the tickets because there were only 10,000 seats at public auditorium and they had received over 100,000 requests. So this was gonna be very interesting. So I said, look, you know, when we get to the box office in the morning, there's no way to control everybody. I said, let's, let's, um, I, I developed a plan. I said, listen to my plan. We're going to go the night before uh, and we're going to get there early and be the first ones to stand online. I don't know, maybe this was like the first time this had ever happened in Cleveland. So we both, we each told our households that we were staying overnight at one another's house, but instead we went downtown. And we were indeed, I was the first person to attach myself to the wall of public hall, and she was the second. And through the night, the crowd began to grow a little bit. And as it got closer and closer to, um, you know, a big crowd of people, a police officer walked over and said, there's a lot of kids here, you know, I'm going to take down names. What's your name? I said, Janice Hawkins. I said, did you write down number one, Janice Hawkins? He says, got it right here. And he went down the crowd asking the kids' names and writing them down. So everything was good until around 8 in the morning. And then all these kids showed up. They didn't care about a line or anything like that. They just started crashing. So I, I around 8.30, 8.45, I was completely pushed out of my number one spot. I was not happy, let me tell you. So I found that police officer and I said, excuse me, do you remember that you wrote down names during the night? I said, look at all these kids, they're totally out of control. This isn't right. 
I was number one. He says, well, what's your name? I said, Janice Hawkins. He looked at his list. He said, there you are, number one. He said, follow me. And he cleared a, a line. He cleared the line, walked me right up to the box office, just said it, at it oh, as it opened. And he said, this young lady is the first one online to buy her tickets. And oh my gosh, was I happy. I handed my letter over to the box office lady and I, she's reading the letter and I'm thinking, what's taking so long? Didn't you know we were coming? And she says, well, what seats would you like? And I said, how do you not know that I want front row center? I can't believe it, you know? I said, front row center. So she handed me my two tickets. They were $6.50 each. I paid and I just got out of there, afraid somebody was gonna try and rip them out of my hand. So I'm standing on the corner looking for my friend and I don't see her anywhere, but I know she's in there. We had agreed to, to meet at Woolworth's lunch area. So I went over there and I sat down, you know, and I ordered my Coca-Cola and I'm looking at my tickets, the golden prize, and I'm waiting for her to arrive. After a while, she drags herself through the front door of Woolworths. Her sweater is torn. She's missing a shoe. Mascara is running down her cheeks from crying, you know. She throws herself in the chair and she holds up the two tickets that she's got, which were $4.50, the back of the orchestra. She said, this was the best I could do. I said, okay, calm down. Look what I've got, front row center. And that's where I do believe she cried. So we went home, now we have our tickets. Now we know when we're leaving. That was very important because now we could buy our TWA one-way airline tickets to London. So we, we went over to um, uh, the TWA uh, ticket office on Euclid Avenue in Cleveland. And we said, we're go we want one-way tickets to London for September 16th, the first flight out of Cleveland. So uh, the, the woman who was working there, she said, oh, are your parents sending you on vacation? And we both said, yes. So she said, how exciting. <laughs> and she gave us our, our tickets. She said, well, you'll be leaving uh, Cleveland Hopkins Airport, going to JFK, where you'll have a layover. And then your flight will, for London Heathrow Airport, will be leaving around 8 o'clock at night. So we, we left. So now we had our, our tickets to the concert. We had our tickets to London one way. Because we were leaving for we were leaving forever. We were gonna live there forever where life was beautiful and happy. So during the summer, I had an opportunity to meet the Rolling Stones. This was totally unplanned, unprecedented. A disc jockey that I had met at a teen dance earlier in the year, he had invited me up to the KYW studio just for a tour, and then later on called me and said, the Rolling Stones are gonna be on the Mike Douglas show. If you wanna come and see them, get dressed up and come alone. That's the only way that's gonna work. So I said, perfect. I got dressed up, came alone, went downtown, went to the studio. He brought me up to the Mike Douglas studio and said, well, I, we're leaving because we have to do, we're doing a record promo over at one of the department stores. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, wow, I'm gonna see the Rolling Stones because I had purchased their album, played it on my record player, and I listened to all the songs. And um, so 
So then I'm sitting there waiting and then suddenly this man comes in, huge, bald guy, walks right up to me and he says, where's your ticket? I said, oh, I don't need a ticket. Harry Martin brought me in here. He said, well, if you don't have a ticket, I don't care who brought you in here, you, you gotta leave. So I was forced to leave. I just followed him out. He opened a door. You know, I walked out the door and the door closed. I'm in some hallway in the building and I'm looking around and I was not happy and I was not leaving. I see a door with the doorknob. I propel myself over there, turn the knob, pull the door, it opens. I walk in, it closes behind me and I just keep walking down this hallway and this little man comes running up to me and he says, are you on the show today? And I said, yes. He said, well, then follow me. I'll show you where your dressing room is. <laughs> so I just follow along. He points me in a hallway and he says, your room's down there somewhere. Just walk along and you'll find it. Thank you. I'm walking along and I see that there's dressing rooms, you know, and some people are in them. I see the end of the hallway and I'm wondering, what am I going to do when I get to the end? Get to the end. I turn to the left. I look in a door. And there's Bill Wyman the Rolling Stones bass guitarist, sitting there with his guitar. I stand totally frozen. I'm now paralyzed. Yeah. He says, uh, he says, well, hello. Are you on the show today? No. Are you with the radio station? No. Are you? No. Oh, you must be a fan. Yes. <laughs> now I'm capable of saying two words, right? Yeah. <laughs> And he says, well, come in and sit down here. And he invites me to sit down next to him. And I look, and there they all are. Keith Richards, Mick Jagger had put a chair on top of the desk, and he's sitting on top of the desk in this chair. There's Charlie Watts with his drumsticks tapping away on the back of some chair. I rest in peace, Charlie. Rest in peace, and, Charlie. Yeah. And Brian Jones also rest in peace, Brian Jones. He was so beautiful. He looked like an angel. He really did. And he, but he looked like a lost angel. I was really struck by that. How he's walking back and forth and he's kind of talking to himself, not paying attention to anything. And then Mick Jagger looks down at me and he says, I'm tired, hungry, and sexually unfulfilled. And at that point, I could only say yes or no. And neither of those words you know, apply to that, to that situation. So I just looked at him and looked away. You know, I'm a good Catholic girl. Yeah. You know? I'm only 16 years old. I don't know anything about anything. This was the age of innocence, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, we're sitting there and then Bill says, well, the radio people are going to come and take us away to do, to record an interview and you just stay here. And if anybody comes in and wants to know who you are, you just say you're with us. So I just looked at him like, okay, you know, I don't know. They leave. I'm sitting there. I'm looking around at all the things that are in there. You know, besides their instruments, there's there's 45s. There's presents wrapped wrapped up. There's hats. There's all kinds of things in there. And I just I only stand up to look around. You know, it it would have been against. Catholicism as a Catholic high school girl to touch anything, you know, is very respectful. So I'm sitting down and all of a sudden the door opens and this man stands there in the doorway and he says, who are you? And I said, I'm with the stones. He said, okay. 
don't leave because if you do, you might not be able to get back in. He said, because we're finding kids hidden everywhere in the building, underneath the seats, you know, hiding in the stalls in the bathrooms. I said, okay, I won't. And he leaves and I'm sitting there. And I said, I can't believe that that worked. And now I could hear all these kids outside the building screaming and yelling and felt like the building was going to come down any second. But it didn't, of course. And then the stones come back in and we they're all standing up. So I stand up and Bill says, okay, we're going to go on stage now. We're going to perform on the Mike Douglas show. So then Bill says to all the stones, she's with us, right? And they all say, she's with us, meaning me. And Mick Jagger is looking at me. And he's he has got animal magnetism that was like unbelievable. I mean, the man was incredible. So we all go to go to the area of the stage, and Mike Douglas is there, shaking hands with all the boys. And then he says, "When who's this?" Turning to me, and they all say again, "She's with us." I mean, what a moment! So they perform, and then they're finished. And I, I didn't know who these people were that were taking all their things out of the rooms because I didn't know anything about roadies at that time. So they're all just, they're obviously leaving. Uh, they were on their very first American tour and it was a bus tour. So Bill Wyman is the last one and he takes my hand and he says, come with me. And I'm thinking, what, what? No, I mean, no, I mean, I can't go anyway because September 16th, we're leaving. We're going to London. I've got other plans, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, I said, I'm thinking real quick. Well, if I tell him I'm in summer school, he'll think I'm a loser. But if I let him know I have a summer job, that sounds a lot better. So I said, I can't go. I have to work tomorrow. And so we're like the same height, like about five, six. He swoops in and he kisses me on the lips and he walks away. And it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, what a magical moment. So anyway, life goes on. So now on around August 4th, Marty and I, we receive our passports. And I had been taking all my clothes and suitcases and bags over to her house. And we're stuffing them under her bed. We're ready to go. We're taking everything. So now comes the, um, the concert. We attend that. It was, it was incredible. It was the concert that the police had to stop the concert because all these kids in the middle of the third song, I saw her standing there. They rush crazy, screaming, waving signs, crying. I mean, it was like, I never saw anything like that before in my life. Did you pass out? Huh? Did you pass out? No, I'm angry because they're ruining everything. I stay in my seat. That's how I was raised. (laughs) Don't make a fuss. Certainly don't scream and yell. You know, that's not, who I was at all, never have been. So finally the police stopped the the concert and they let everybody know that it's not gonna go on. Then Howard, um, Specs Howard and Harry Martin, my friend, the disc jockey, they come on stage and they get everybody to settle down and get back in their seats so the concert can go on, which it does. And it was incredible, but I couldn't hear a thing they were saying because of all the screaming. We were only 10 feet away from the stage. I mean, it was like amazing to see them finally live, you know, that close, singing all the songs I knew every word to. So, and now the concert is over. You know, there's broke 
or stepping over broken chairs, girls that had fainted were being carried out of there still, you know. And we, uh, we, we go home and in the morning, the next morning, this is it, we're leaving. I pretend like I'm still going to school because I didn't tell anybody, of course, that's what makes it so interesting. We were leaving, we were leaving for good. We were 16 years old and we didn't tell anybody. Next morning, I'm walking over to Marty's house and we call it ta a yellow taxi cab to take us to the airport. We get to the airport and then we, I'd never flown before. It was wonderful, we flew to JFK. Now we have some time to wait at JFK. And I'm honestly a little nervous. You know, what if somebody finds out? And the hours tick by. And in those days, you could get away with this. I mean, there was no internet. There was no way to even find out where we had, where we were. Yeah. More freedom in those days, you know. And uh, so anyway, I'm thinking, well, school must be over by now. Then I'm thinking, I should have been home for dinner by now and all these things. And um, so finally we board JFK, the flight from JFK, TWA plane to go to Heathrow. And we're on our way and I'm thinking, as soon as we get up in the air, we'll be over the Atlantic, you know? And then we'll be landing at Heathrow. And, and at that time when we get there, it'll be like around seven o'clock in the morning, right? Yeah. So I'm looking out. The, uh, the window, we're approaching, and the sky is like a beautiful impressionistic painting. It was purple and yellow and white. It was absolutely amazing. It was so gorgeous. And we land, we go through customs, and the customs officer stamps in our passports, uh, check in with the nearest police station. And I'm wondering, does everybody have to do this or do they know something? But apparently that was what they did you know, for everybody. So Marty and I make it through. She shows me the passport and I said, no, we're not doing that. We're getting a hotel. A hotel. I had only planned for arriving at Heathrow. I figured everything else would work out after that, you know, somehow. <laughs> Total confidence that because we were now in the land where the Beatles were born, the Beatles music was made that everything was going to be beautiful from then on. It would be happy times. So... I approached this lady who worked there and I said, do you know how we can find a hotel? She said, well, go to the taxi stand. The taxi drivers will help you. So we find a taxi, we get in, say to the taxi driver, can you, can you sit at the hotel in Soho? That's where we want to go. So he made a recommendation and we went to the hotel, we checked in, we stayed two nights. And I said, look, this is going to be too expensive. We've got to get an apartment. So the concierge uh, told us, where to go to find a real estate lady. We met this lovely woman named Gwen. Everybody apparently wanted to help American girls. They loved it, you know. So she took us and helped us uh, rent a studio flat in the Notting Hill area, which we didn't know at that time was like a really exclusive area. We had this informal flat and she showed us how to find the tube to get down to Soho. And, and we settled in and we started going to clubs in Soho, and the very first night we went to the Marquee, uh, which was one that we had read about. We didn't know which one the Beatles would go to because it didn't get that specific, but it was gonna be okay, we were in Soho. So that very first night, we meet these two boys, and uh, you know, right away our, our American accents gave us away, made us stand out, and the boy that I met, his 
name was Mick. And he said, oh, Americans, are you from LA or New York? And I said, Cleveland. <laughs> that kind of goes flat, you know, at that point. But he said, yeah, there was a drummer here once from Cleveland. So these boys were, we found out later on, they were from Liverpool. Cool, right? Yeah. And they were musicians, extra cool. And Mick, my the guy that I kind of paired up with, he was the coolest boy. I never saw a boy like that before. He was dressed all in black. And he had like those beetle boots, you know, the one inch heel. Yeah. And he had he had blonde hair and this curl that went down on his forehead. And he smoked uh, cigarettes with no filters. <laughs> I mean, really, oh my gosh, the coolest boy ever. So uh, we all kind of hit it off. And uh, we would meet and go to different clubs like the Two Eyes. And we wound up hitchhiking to Liverpool with these two boys hitchhiking, which was unheard of here, but apparently it was very common over there. So we hitchhike and we make it halfway to Liverpool and we can't get another ride. So Mick just says, well, we'll just, we'll just keep sleep or rest right here. And I'm looking around like, well, I don't see any hotels. He said, no, right here, love, right here. You know, we're going to sleep right here on the ground. So he takes his big giant raincoat and lays it down. And he already had like a blanket and he had, and he said, it's okay. So we lay down and I put my purse between us, you know, and, but he was not like that. He, these boys were total gentlemen all time. So I'm laying there and I'm looking up at the sky. I mean, the sky, I never saw a quiet, more beautiful star filled sky like that one. So I must have dozed off because in the morning I wake up and there's, there's Mick leaning on his arm, smoking a cigarette, you know, and he had brought these little meat pies with him, which he was warming up in his hands. And, you know, he offered me too. I mean, it was so incredibly romantic to me, right? So we, <laughs> so we all get ready again, you know, and of course there, I said, well, there's no bathrooms. And he said, right over there, love, nature's bathroom, you know, behind the bushes. So Marty and I go over there and she says, well, isn't this great? You know, we could be home where there's real bathrooms. I said, this is a real, as real as it can get. So finally, the car stops for us and we get in. This elderly man is going to Liverpool and he reminds me of the man who played Paul McCartney's grandfather in It's a Hard Day's Night. He's even got the little cap, you know. And I keep hoping he's going to say the word book the way his, the grandfather did, boop, but he never does. <laughs> and he drives us all the way to Liverpool. He's visiting his son who's going to the, the music school in Liverpool, drops us off at the uh, on Albert Dock. And the plan is, my plan anyways, of course, the Cavern Club. But now we're in the, the sacred ground, you know, where the Beatles were born and where they went to the Cavern Club and, you know, that's where they would go all the time. But the plan had had to change because the boys were staying because they had some gigs in some other town, but they had already made arrangements for us to be driven back. Uh, but we had to leave before the Cavern Club opened for lunch, which was very, very disappointing for me. But I took heart that we would be back. This was just simply, 
you know, a chance to see everything a little bit. So our, his friends drove us back and uh, we started continuing going back down. We met two other boys, Paul and Roy, not from Liverpool. They were London boys. So um, happy to meet two American girls. So they took us to different clubs. One of them was the Crawdaddy Club where uh, they said the Rolling Stones had been the house band just two weeks prior. And had we ever heard of the Kinks, who were now going to be the house band. And I said, the name sounds familiar. And he said, well, when you get back to the United States, you're going to hear about the kinks a lot. So I realized now we were like, we were there where British invasion groups were now being formed. They were being hatched. They were being born. We were there in the ultimate place where you could possibly be. So we would hang out with them. And then uh, dance, you know, coffee bars there were very popular because there was no alcohol, but groups played. There was live music from groups like every night. It was where wow. you went. Yeah, it was what you did. This was the life. I was now living the life I wanted to live. I was so happy. So then uh, Mick and uh, John, they came back and we, we met up and we continued on. Uh, you know, going out, we'd be doing some sightseeing, seeing, and I wound up going to Harrods, and I made my most expensive purchase there. I knew that it would rain a lot in, in England, so I had to buy an umbrella. So I bought an umbrella at Harrods. It was beautiful with a curved handle and everything, and we would go to Carnaby Street, and we made some, we made some clothing purchases there, you know, boots, of course, black boots black pants, stretch pants, and uh, we were just so happy. And so Mick and I were walking along Oxford Street. Now we had been there 23 days, not knowing that anybody might be looking for us. I'm thinking, well, they're happy, I'm gone. They don't have to worry about me anymore. This is great. I'm not sure about the future, but I'm sure it's all gonna work out. So we're walking along, just me and Mick, Marty had stayed home. She was kind of distancing herself more and more, which I didn't really understand why. We're walking along. Now we're at the hand stage. And I see a Bobby kind of in the distance, but he, had, I, I'm, he has my attention for some reason. And I'm kind of struck, you know, and he walks closer. And I, I knew in my heart it was all over. He walks up and he says, oh, excuse me, young lady are you from the United States? And I said, why, yes, I am. Would you happen to be from Cleveland, Ohio? And I said, oh, yes, yes, I am. Why do you ask? He said, well, there are two girls here on holiday and they haven't written home to their parents and their parents are quite worried about them. I said, well, but I'm sure there's lots of girls here from Cleveland. Why are you asking me? He said, well, you seem to resemble one of them. And now I know, oh my gosh, they have our pictures. What's happening? He says, why don't we just walk along to the police station and we'll just make sure. Of course, we have no choice, right? But he lets us walk together. You know, he's not intrusive whatsoever. We get to the police station, we walk into the lobby and Bobby simply points up to, the, to this missing poster. And there's my picture and there's Marty's picture. And I look up and I said, aha, now I see where you made the mistake because the resemblance is uncanny. 
And he just looks at me, you know, with this look of amusement on his face. And he says, well, I'd love for you to talk to these two ladies over here. So now, of course, it's all over. You know, Mick can see that. And he just kind of, I'm totally consumed by what's happening right now. You know, and I don't notice that Mick, of course, has faded to black, you know, excuse me, behind me. And I, I'm, I walk over to these two ladies and they're standing in this very small room with no windows. And immediately I'm thinking Jimmy Cagney movies, the rubber hose, you know, the lights in your eyes, the confession. And I think, no, that's not going to happen to me. I'm going to confess immediately. So I, I walk up and I said, okay, I'm the girl you're looking for. And they said, oh, we know love. Let's sit down and have a cup of tea and let's talk about things. Of course, very nice and polite. I tell them everything. Whatever they want to know, I tell them. Then I find out that I have to spend the night there. So they escort me upstairs, and it's actually a holding cell. But the police officer says, oh, don't worry. You know, your friend is on her way. And I'm thinking she's on the tube, right? But I quickly learned the police are bringing her over. So we're both, she shows up. She's very angry with me, very. She's not really speaking to me anymore. She yells at me. So um, then I learned while I'm there that uh, the police and everybody, Scotland Yard, everybody had been looking for us. I said, really? He said, didn't you know that? And I said, no. He said, didn't you watch the telly or read the newspaper or listen to the radio? I said, no, we're just living our lives, you know, doing everything we want to do, going down to Soho, listening to live music. He said, oh, oh, and he shows me some newspapers. And he said, oh, even the Beatles were looking for you. Like the Beatles, he said, uh, and, the, and the police officers, everybody put some money in a pool. So the first officer to find you gets the money in the pool. I said, oh, my gosh. He said, so that Bobby that found you is going to get quite a tidy sum. So we have to spend the night, and a police officer, a higher-ranking one, comes to speak to us and says, where well, you'll have to spend the night, but it'll be all right. And in the morning, uh, the man from the United States Embassy will come to escort you to the embassy. So they gave us dinner, you know, and they made sure we were comfortable. And we woke up to the knock on the door, and they opened the door. And they were really so happy and quite proud that they had found us. And he said, well, we're bringing up a full breakfast for you, uh, a special breakfast for the VIPs, which we don't often get a VIP here for the Beetle Girls. So now we were the Beetle Girls. So we had this delicious breakfast, you know, fried tomatoes and beans and sausages and, of course, tea. And a couple hours later, a man from the embassy came, and he had us uh, escorted by two lady police detectives in a police car with, they had put blankets on the windows, which I couldn't understand. Well, what's happening here? To find out that there's all these reporters, photographers, everywhere trying to take our pictures or anything and they didn't want us to um, be subjected to that yet so we go to the embassy down into the basement and they bring us up on elevator on an elevator we're in the office of the uh, the legal counsel for the united states embassy so he sits there and he says well you girls have caused quite a stir but I'm sure you'd like some American food. And he practically snaps his fingers. 
And they brew hamburgers and french fries and Coca-Colas. So he waits for us to finish eating. And he tells us that, I want you to understand you have not done anything wrong here. You're here legally. You've, you have passports. You have enough money. And in, in England, minors are not required to be unaccompanied, to be accompanied here, you know, as long as they know they can take care of themselves, which you have. He said, however, the police in Cleveland Heights, they would like to have you returned. I said, I'm just sitting there looking at him and I, I see my future very bleak in front of me. He said, you can either go back on your own steam and then you can come back whenever you want or you'd have to be deported and then you could never come back. So my hand just shot, shot up immediately and I said, I'm going back on my own steam. And I assume Marty said the same thing. He said, excellent. So now we're going to take you to the airport. They were ready for us to go back one way or another. We were leaving. So we're in an embassy, we're in an embassy limo and there's no blankets on the windows whatsoever. And we're being driven to Heathrow and there's photographers on the backs of motor scooters. Wow. Taking our pictures. And as a matter of fact, the cover of my book I'll just show you real quick. That's me. Yes. That's my picture being taken. I'm in the embassy limo on my way to Heathrow Airport. I just figured, hey, they're calling my name. Hi. You know, and it was all over the news, this picture. And there was lots of news. International. We were wanted like everywhere. It was shocking. So anyway, actually, before we go to Heathrow, Mr. Lillianfels well, says, well, I'm afraid you're going to have to have a press conference. I said, well, what, what, what does that mean? He says, well, because of the incident with the Beatles, so there's so much stirred up that you're going to have to have, have this press conference. He said, but it'll just be a couple minutes. You'll just go to the steps of the embassy, and they'll ask you a couple questions, and it'll be over, and we'll be on our way. I was terrified. They just really threw us to the wolves there. And there's all those reporters, you know, long beige trench coats, microphones, everything you can imagine, photographers. And this one, one reporter puts a microphone in my face and says, so I understand your allegiance has changed from the Beatles to the Rolling Stones. And I'm thinking, what? Anybody even know about the Rolling Stones, you know? So I just, whatever they said, I just said no. And then it was over. And then we were at the airport, locked into the VIP room. Then it came time, so the detectives were outside, making sure, I guess, that we didn't escape. I don't know where we would go or that anybody would get in, you know, and maybe try and get to us. But um, it was time for us to go. Of course, in those days, you walked along the tarmac to get to your plane, no matter where you were going. And then we're on the tarmac. Again, there's a reporters, you know, rushing us, more questions, no pictures, but learn my lesson from the press conference and I wouldn't say a word. And get on the plane and uh, we arrive back at JFK airport. Now we're in a whole nother world. In England, everybody was very polite. The police were so lovely to us. They kind of treated it as, as a delightful lark, you know, we get back to JFK. Now we're like junior criminals. People are grabbing us. They're yelling at us. People had to form a circle to keep us safe while we were in the terminal, you know, on our way to a flight to Cleveland. 
And there's our two detectives from Cleveland Heights to escort us back to Cleveland. We're separated on the plane. I realize this is serious now. I better start saying things that are going to help me when I get back. So I'm telling the detective, oh, I'm so sorry for what I did. But I'm laughing inside, thinking I'm not sorry at all. I'm glad. I couldn't be happier for what I did. And we get back to Cleveland, and of course, it's extremely dramatic because it's dark, it's nighttime, it's cold, and it's pouring rain, you know. And, our, and people are trying to run up the stairwell to get to, to the airplane to get us, to talk to us. It's the same kind of a scene, but the detectives are bringing us, escorting us down the staircase. And I'm pushed into a police car by myself. And suddenly the police car is taking off, driving really fast, you know, through these dark, winding streets. I have no idea. And we get to a building. And now I'm pulled out of the car, you know, pushed up the stairs into the building. I don't know where I am. I'm forced to go into this room, undress, and now I'm being examined by this lady. And I said, where am I? She says, don't you know, you're in juvie. I said, what's juvie? She said, you're in the Cuyahoga County Juvenile Detention Home. I said, well, why? She won't answer any questions. I don't know what's happening. All I know is that Mr. Lillianfeld said we had done nothing wrong. And I just kept hold on that. So then we're forced to spend the night. Of course, we're separated. I don't see my friend anymore. And I'm in a dormitory, cold, dark, with all these beds and all these girls are in it. I have no clue what's going on. And so in the morning, the next day, actually, we're bonded out. I didn't know what bonded meant. And I have to face my, my relatives my great aunt and her daughter. So uh, there's total silence. It's all silence. There's no, oh, we're so glad you're okay. You know, it just, it just fortified my belief that it was a good thing I had left, you know, and I wish I didn't have to come back because now I'm going back to the same life that I had after my uncle died, which was uh, a total nightmare because losing him was the worst thing it could have happened to me. I knew it was over at that point, And that really propelled me to leave once I found happiness, you know, with the Beatles. So we go back home and um, we have to go to juvenile court because now we're going to be declared juvenile delinquents for truancy and running away. But it was a much bigger story than that because the judge, Judge Gagliardo, he assembled newspaper reporters once again in the jury box in the juvenile court, which that could never happen today. No. Never. See, it was a different era then. Uh, so he wanted to be the judge. He made himself be appointed on our case because he had accompanied his daughter to that Beatles concert. And what he had seen there with all these kids completely out of control, with no supervision, just astounded him. And I couldn't blame him, really, for being astounded. I, I didn't like it either. But he made it a point to say how, because of the evils of rock and roll music, you know, we were transformed into doing things we never would have done before this. And he said that parents who did not accompany their children to the concert should hang their heads in shame. And he made a lot of other disparaging comments about the evils of rock and roll 
and how it would lead to riots and it was just like drugs and things like that. So the next day, based on that, the mayor of Cleveland said that Beatlemania and rock and roll was now banned in Cleveland, could not perform at any public buildings. That was it, it was all over. So the next day, the Rolling Stones were scheduled for their concert at the very same place that the Beatles had had a very successful concert. Only now, this band and what the judge had said was hanging over them. And even though they had had a sold out concert, 10,000 seats, because of that, only 4,000 people came to their concert. And I had read in the newspaper that we had been given free tickets to that concert, and also we were going to have a meet and greet afterwards. And I was reading in the newspaper, I was thinking, wow, I didn't know about that. Who arranged that? Oh my gosh, I'll get to see Bill Wyman again. But then when, you know, like, then the, you know, the judge, you know, pronounced us and that we couldn't attend any more concerts, of course, it was all over. So that's kind of how I was responsible. I felt that way for getting rock and roll and Beatlemania banned in Cleveland. So that's kind of what happened, you know, some of the story from start to that terrible ending. <laughs> I mean, I, rock and roll isn't still banned, I'm going to guess. No, the ban was lifted and the Beatles were able to perform in 1966. Okay, that's a good thing. Um, yeah. When, when writing this book, like, um, was it a lot of like, I just need to, you know, expand my story or what? Like, how long did it take for everything to kind of fall into place while writing? Well, it was very hard because I had to face a lot of things that I didn't really want to think about. When I moved to New York, you know, New York, you can all, anybody can put their past behind them in New York. And that's where I was able to begin my career. I was a, a journalist and I, a, uh, I became an investigator there. So I was totally consumed with my work. But I'm also a 9-11 survivor from the World Trade Center. Oh, wow. So it was that that changed my life once again. I couldn't really get over it very well. So I came back to Cleveland in 2004. And if I hadn't come back here, I wouldn't have written the book. But I was here facing the ghosts of my past. And um, of course, after the Paul McCartney concert, when I had that other, you know, uh, mind-blowing revelation I could tell my story now you know I, I don't have to worry about being sanctioned by the court because I was forbidden to talk about it by my the family the court school my school definitely put put an end to any discussion about it and um, search so they said you know the best thing that you you can do is just put it behind you you know and move forward so I had decided way back then that that's what I would do. But then in 2016, of course, I didn't have to answer to anything. I didn't have to answer to the church, the juvenile court, relatives, you know, school, nobody. I was free to, to tell my story, which I had always wanted to talk about it, but I had not talked about it for all those decades and even kind of forgot about the idea that I could talk about it. And I just became used to reliving it in my mind. It was my own 
secret treasure, you know, that I can think about in quite great delight and go, oh yeah, me and Mick and oh my gosh, you know, the last time I spoke to him, um, you know, they were, he and the rest of them were waiting for me to come back and my goal was to come back as soon as possible. So I just kept that and relived it. It was such the most delightful thing I ever did in my life. So I talked to a friend and he referred me to another friend who wanted to hear my whole story. And he said, he said, well, just start writing it down. I said, well, what do you mean, write it down? He said, well, don't you understand? You have a wonderful, incredible story to tell. It's a book. I said, it is? He said, yes, start writing. So I said, okay, I will. And I began. And I never wrote anything on that scale before. And so I had joined a, a writing group here. And I said, what do I do? And they said, well, you just begin at the beginning and then you end. And you write it all down. So it meant for a lot of soul searching, like thinking about what I had done, what my life had been like as a child, and how I had probably hurt my aunt a great deal and all the other things I had done that I had no awareness of, but I had to face all that stuff. And I had to face the wonderful things with my uncle, you know, and now I could write about that. I could write about what it was like as a child for me, you know, just, I wanted to just give an idea of the childhood that I had come through that made me a, a survivor and a little kid who had to figure things out on her own, like, alcoholic parents, no food, figuring out how to eat, how to find clean clothes and all that stuff, how I was treated, how to run away, to survive, all that stuff. I just wanted to write a little bit, not everything, of course, but just to give a taste of how I became that girl, that brave, kind of spunky, outside the box, do what I had to do to survive girl, a girl who could come up with a plan at age 16, you know, to leave and run away to England to hopefully live forever in Beetleland. So I had to face a lot and it was hard. There was, I cried, I laughed, you know, I remembered things in great, greater detail. And it took me about three years actually. And I gave myself deadlines along the way, which really helps. I'm, I'm very, very responsive to deadlines. As a former uh, reporter as, and also as an investigator, you have to have deadlines. You can't just lollygag about things. It's got to get done. It's got to get done now. So I, that helped me a lot to um, get it finished. Anne, I want to thank you for your time to come on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I really appreciate it. Where else can we find you and how's the best way for us to contact you? Um, well, I have a website. It's uh, Janice-Mitchell.com. Uh, that's probably, you know, there's a way to contact me on there. And my book is available on Amazon.com. And I have a Facebook page. And I have a Facebook book page, which is my Ticket to Ride Beatles fan book. And there's lots of links on there for different uh, I've had a lot of interviews and podcasts and your podcast will soon be on there, I'm sure. So there's, there's plenty of ways, you know, to contact me and order my book 
Amazon.com, My Ticket to Ride, 